Good morning again. Happy Spring Forward Day. I found out about that last night as I was going to bed. Jackie texted me and said, remember, it's Spring Forward today. It's always on Saturday night. It's always on Saturday night. So I'm very good job. For those of you who came really early today, well done. Um, spring Forward is, is exhausting. Today, today I'm hoping we can see, it, see a resounding message from the writers of Scripture that's intended to give us a clearer picture of who God is. Uh, this is a this is a message that is uh, in in the book Gentle and Lowly, in, uh, in one of the later chapters. Uh, I, I read the, I read a quote from our author, and he said, Dane, Dane Orland said, um, "The Christian life, from one angle, is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who He is." Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. Just like Carrie said, when it comes to deliverance ministry, take everything you've seen in the movies and throw it out the window kind of thing. You know, in our relationship with God, a lot of times we, our journey is letting go of bad theology about God and taking hold of good theology. And so my hope is that this sermon, uh, which is kind of hidden in the, in the scriptures, will, will inspire you, cause you to love the word of God more, um, and dig deeper to find God's grace. Uh, I'm praying that this sermon changes our, helps, helps to move our mental image of God to a more accurate image of who God is than the one we hold in our minds. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in our deepest heart, who is God? When we don't see who God is clearly and consistently, then we have a, often have a hard time coming to him when we need him the most. That's one of the great tragedies of, of having wrong thoughts about God or harsh thoughts about God. Um, because if you, have thought, if you entertain thoughts of God that are, that are unduly harsh and unbalanced, then you don't feel the sense that you can really come to God as you are in your sin. You don't really have the sense that there is no condemnation for you. So today we're going to be looking at uh, this picture of God from Scripture. Dane Orland also said, the, the fall, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden from, and forward, it's entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. So what he's saying is that we kind of have to hear the good news over and over and over again from one another, from our pastor, from our worship songs, in order to come to believe it. And sometimes we have to take the good news that's in the Bible that we don't fully believe and ask God to help us to see it for what, for what it is, help us to change our image of God. Because sometimes the, the, the um, as our author said, Satan's greatest victory in our lives is not the sin in which we regularly indulge, necessarily, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place, to keep you cold towards him in the wake of it. So, you know, the, the big thing in all of this is when you are sick, you need a doctor. Yeah, ho hopefully, right? Um, we are all affected by the fall, all affected by sin. Our, 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 the way we think is, not only do we often do wrong very naturally, but the way we think about things is often wrong as well as a result of that. So that's why the Word of God is so awesome. We can come to the Bible and see a bigger picture of who God is. 
the worst thing, the most tragic thing, is when we need God the most, feeling the least permission to come to him. We need God so badly, but we do not come to him because we do not know in our hearts how will he receive me. What a tragedy that is, a sick person not being able to come to a doctor to be healed. As I said, our, our, our sinful nature as people, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't just encourage us to rebel against the Lord. Our sinful nature also distorts our image of God, um, which keeps us from coming to him when we need to. It happens all the time. Let me ask you if this sounds anything like your story. At the very moment when you need a loving and compassionate Savior to the most, you fail to reach out to him because you are scared he will condemn you rather than help you. Does that sound familiar? We're, in, our, in our hearts as, as Christians, even, even, even hearing the truth of, of the gospel time and time again, sometimes we're deeply scared that we're going to be condemned. And so we stay where we are. We stay in, in, our, in the muck, in the mire. We're unsure about God's heart for us. And I think God wants us to, over our lives, over many, many sermons and many um, times in the Word, many worship courses, many conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ, God wants us to think of Him the way that He describes Himself and who He really is. As most of you know by now, for me personally, my only natural predator in the wild is a bunny. Um, that's a true story. Sweet, fuzzy, adorable rabbits are my only natural enemy. When my kids see rabbits in our backyard, they say, Look, Dad, it's your enemies hopping around the lawn. Dander from a bunny sent me to the ER several years ago. As soon as I got to the hospital, one look, and I was rushed to the front of the line, put in a wheelchair, and immediately given an epinephrine shot. Because my eyes were bulging out of my head. It was terrifying to look at, actually. <clears throat> they don't really mess around with that stuff, thank God, in the hospital. Whenever there's a breathing issue involved. Immediately after I got, got this uh, miracle shot of epinephrine in my leg, it was like magic. My symptoms just started to dissipate. And I thought to myself, well, I could probably go home now. And then, to which they said, well, you're in urgent care. We don't let people drive who've gotten the epinephrine shot. You're getting in an ambulance. It's going to be an expensive ride over to the ER where we're going to treat you further. That's what I did. I, I, I paid the very expensive cab fee on that ambulance, and a couple months later, and uh, got to the hospital. It's amazing how after the shot, you know, after just a couple of minutes, I think to myself, wow, I went from thinking I'm going to die to thinking, I'd like to go home now. When we have a distorted image of who God is and what his heart is towards us, it causes us to refuse the antidote being offered to us by the professionals who know what they're doing when we need that antidote the very most. So what, a, what a needless tragedy for someone who's struggling to breathe, refusing the shot that will treat them and save their lives. You know, when our image of God is so warped that we cannot bring ourselves to come to him when we need help or are stuck in our sin, it's a tragedy like this. God came as a man in Jesus Christ. We talked about this last week, the Godhead, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. God came in Christ to live and die to save and help sinners. Many of these sinners being the worst of the worst by their own admission. The Apostle Paul says, but this grace has saved me, all sinners of whom I am the worst. Again, Paul was murdering Christians and dragging them into the streets 
uh, men, women, and children before God saves him. He's the worst of the worst. Now, God came as a man in Christ to die to save and help sinners, uh, even the worst of them. Jesus said in his mission statement in 531 to 32, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus said further in John 5, uh, 16 through 18, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. That's not the correct. John 3, 16. Sorry. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the, send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did not send Jesus to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Again, this is the antidote being offered, Jesus Christ. If we refuse the antidote, he's God's one and only Son. He is the only way to, to get help in the world that really exists. Whoever believes in him not condemned. If you don't believe in him, you stand condemned already. Jesus says um, this, this very message twice in the same gospel, in the gospel of John. In John 12, 47, he says, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to the world, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. But what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world out of love to invite sinners to come to him to receive from him salvation, health, life to the full. Coming to Jesus is the only prerequisite to being helped and saved. And the only people who will be judged by God and condemned in the last day are the people that refuse God's path of, of insisting that we come through Jesus. So in one sense, it's this wide invitation. Anyone, anyone who believes in Jesus and calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone. Likewise, anyone who refuses God's loving offer, you know, there is, there is no salvation in any other name. There's no other name under heaven by which men and women can be saved but Jesus Christ. So it's this wide invitation. Everybody in a narrow way, through Christ. And, and um, we're encouraged. Jesus was not sent to condemn us, but he was sent because of God's love for the whole world. He was sent because of God's love to save us, to heal us, not to condemn us. So receiving Jesus is utmost importance. Again, coming to Christ is the only way to really be helped and saved. God did not come in Jesus Christ to condemn you or anyone else. He came out of compassionate love to save some very lost people. And the only one who will be condemned is the person who refuses Jesus Christ. Just like a person choking for air, refusing an epipen. God did not come to the world in Jesus to condemn the world, but to save and help you and I. And Jesus is still in this world, inhabiting his church, 
in the spirit of God and Christ. And that spirit that indwells our church and dwells us as believers is, um, is the same exact presence and spirit as Jesus because it is the spirit of Christ, the Trinitarian God. And that spirit is not here to condemn, but to save as well. If the spirit does anything, which he does many things, he convicts us of our need for Jesus. He convinces us that Jesus is the only way. That he applies the work of Jesus to our lives to save us, not to condemn us. To see the truth of, of this uh, amazing of thoughts about God, we're going to look at two stories that uh, Jane Orland looked at in our book, uh, from the old, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. The first story is from Exodus 33 and 34, and it's the story of Moses as he uh, tries to lead God's people the best he can. Uh, people that are very uh, stiff-necked and kind of refuse, um, refuse to just go along with <laughs> what God is asking them to do time and time again. And the other is the story of Jesus in Mark 6, um, walking on the water. So we're going to look at these passages side by side to get a look at who God says God is in his very heart and nature. When I was growing up in the church, one of the really bright points of that experience was the pastor's wife, who was and, and still is a wonderful and gracious woman of God. I saw her at a funeral a few weeks ago, and just, she's the same as she's always been. And she said something to us in our Sunday school classes time and time again. And she was so excited, so enthusiastic about it, that even though I didn't understand what she was talking about, I believed that, that it must be true. So she'd be teaching us as kids and teens, and she had this, like, cloth flower. And she covered it with her hand, and she, and she said, um, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself to a certain extent. And then she'd release the flower petals so they kind of open up a little more. Uh, so, it's, so that it finally burst into full bloom. And she said, since Jesus Christ came, as we read the New Testament, who God is is now fully revealed in Christ. So it's this idea of like progressive revelation that from, from Moses to Jesus, you know, we, we get a partial revelation of God in the Old Testament and then fully revealed in Christ who is the image of the invisible God. And like I said, I didn't really understand this concept thoroughly at the time, but uh, even though this woman was, was a pretty straight-laced Presbyterian, she would just ex exclaim literally, Hooray! Hooray! Praise the Lord for his goodness! Like in our class, like a charismatic. It was awesome. I think she was a charismatic. Now, I'll never forget, uh, Janet, what she taught me about God's revelation. Um, this picture that, that God is, has been revealing himself from the beginning. From the very earliest time in human history until the present day. And his revelation has been progressive. And Jesus Christ is the fullness of God's revelation. No one knew God uh, as intimately as people who met Jesus. And, and truly, you know, we who have not seen God but know Jesus, we, we know God quite well just through seeing let's look at this. We're going to look at this, this um, partial revelation of God in the Old Testament story of Moses and the Israelites. And then we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament to see 
see the full flower of God's character revealed more fully in Christ. The context for this Exodus passage is that God has set the captives free. He's released his people from captivity in Egypt, um, where they were enslaved. And he, d- he did this because um, he heard their cries to him. He heard their cries to God, and so he, uh, he finally answered, and he set them free. Through a great salvation, you know, uh, being pursued. Very, I mean, it's, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing story. Now these liberated people that have, have seen the miracle of God and, and setting them free from Egyptian slavery, miraculously walking on dry land through the Red Sea to escape. Now these people are following God's lead through following Moses, who is God's representative, leading them through the desert. And sadly, it's not going well in the story. In Exodus 34, the people continue to complain about everything. Uh, they, they complain that they don't have meat. They complain they don't have water. It's not the kind of food they wanted. God provides food for them. They don't like the taste of it. It's weird. Give us something different. We had it better in Egypt. Imagine that. We had it better as slaves in Egypt. Why have you brought us out to this desert to die? That's not good. That's not really a good times for Moses as a leader. It got so bad that Moses, you know, he went to the top of the mountain to meet with God, and this is where God was giving him the Ten Commandments to help his people have a revelation of who he was and begin to follow him in love. And when Moses got down the mountain, he realized that during the time he had been meeting with God up there, the people below, um, under the supposed leadership of Aaron, uh, had said, oh, he's a long time in coming back. And they fashioned a golden calf, and they said, this is our God who led us out of captivity in Egypt. And they bowed down and worshipped him. This is a horrifying turn of events. And Moses comes down the mountain with these Ten Commandments that are inscribed on stone tablets. He sees the stone people, he smashes these things. This, is, this image is just so, uh, so crazy. This is a bad day in spiritual leadership for Moses have these people learn nothing as they found themselves. Moses is so exhausted from trying to lead what he calls the stiff-necked people who are constantly forgetting what God has done for them and whining about everything from food and water to, to Moses' actual leadership of them. And I'm sure that I know that Moses would have happily let anyone else no, fine, you do it. This is not fun for me. In fact, I think he said that kind of thing several times. So in the midst of all this turmoil, God's been gracious calls Moses his friend during this time. Calls Moses his friend, his close, close friend. And, and, and God has been gracious to lead his people with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Again, they're seeing God manifest, but still uh, struggling to, to just stop complaining about everything. It strikes me that God calls Moses friend uh, really in my opinion, because finally, God has somebody else who feels the pain that he feels. That's when, that's when we really connect with a friend, right? You find someone that's been through something similar to you, and you, and you realize you're not the only one. Um, and you feel that sense of comfort, knowing there's someone else that you can lean on who understands. And Moses began to understand, like no one else in history, what it's like to be God. What it's like to lovingly, faithfully, sacrificially lead people 
and essentially be have someone spit in the face of that and say, you know, we don't want that. We want something different. So Moses has become friends with God. Amazing. We're going to pick it up in um, Exodus 33.10 and read through 34.11. It'll be a little bit of a longer reading. And as we read this, listen to the revelation that God offers of himself to Moses and to us, his people. This is the beginnings of that flower beginning to, to open and show the beautiful petals inside. Not a full revelation of who God is, but a partial revelation that speaks about God. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. Now the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you, and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And the picture of this cosmic, holy, beautiful God, whose face cannot be beheld, but lovingly takes his friend and places him in the rock, mercifully covers him, and allows Moses to see God's glory. His, his, you know, that's, I know we don't usually think of the backside as glory. But some, well, some people do, I guess. Um, but this is, this is the idea. It's a picture of the, the trail of God's glory passing in front of him, and God lovingly saying, I will show you a part of myself. I can't show you everything, because no one can see me and live. Again, this is the beginnings of this plant, this, this flower flowering. Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two new stone tablets, like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablet which you broke. <laughs> I think I've said the same sentence to my kids several times. <laughs> it's just kind of funny to read it now for some reason. It's such an awesome relationship study about like a deep relationship with God and what that looks like. It's such an awesome, awesome book. Just allow these two things. You broke the first ones. Um, be ready in the morning and then come up on the Mount Sinai. 
Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents in the third and fourth generations. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I had found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Again, this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders, never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome it is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you to do today. What did you hear God reveal to about himself in this passage from Moses? Shout it out. What did you hear? Covenant. Yep, that's the, the covenant that God made, made with him. Yes, compassionate and gracious. Faithful. Abounding in love. This is how God describes himself. This is how people describe God. Compassionate. Gracious. Slow to anger. In our sinful state, we tend to think of God as being quick to anger. Very, very easily, that's where our, our brain goes. Quick to anger, quick to anger. But he's slow to anger. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And not only this, but God is saying, I am just. He does punish sin and disciplines those he loves. But his discipline is short-lived and intended to lead people into repentance so they can live life to the full and be saved. Now God, as we've seen in our book, is most naturally compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. He does not need to be provoked into compassion and love and, 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 uh, and salvation. He doesn't need to be provoked into those things. He has to be provoked for a long time for him to become angry. He's very long-suffering and patient. He's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Rich in love. He's just. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. But his, his discipline is meant to draw us into So now we've, we've seen this passage and what it says about God. We're going to go into Mark 6. Um, and this is the story of Jesus walking on the water. And this, this, is, this is where that partially bloomed flower from the Moses story just bursts open. And we see the glory of who God is in Christ. This is really awesome. The context in this passage is that Jesus has just sent out his 12 disciples, two by two, 
to preach and minister in Jesus' name. And uh, it says here, the twelve were given authority to cast out demons like Jesus had done, to pray for and heal the sick as well. And so these, these two by two, these group, these six groups of two by two uh, went out, and they had a great, great day in ministry. Um, they came back and reported to Jesus that they had success in preaching and success in driving out demons, as we talked about earlier, success in anointing and healing sick people, and, uh, and, and Jesus rejoiced that they were able to do that. The ministry of those, those six groups of two uh, became so well known in the area, it was so fantastic, even uh, King Herod heard about it, and it made him nervous, because King Herod at that very time had just beheaded and murdered John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the one who said, prepare the way for the Lord. Probably Jesus, one of Jesus' best friends, his cousin, his, his ministry partner, the one that called forth um, the praises of God before Jesus even came into the waters of baptism. King Herod had killed John the Baptist, because John the Baptist told him that he was living in sin, doing something he shouldn't be doing. Herod didn't like that. Kings don't like that. Kings don't like that. So there's a lot going on in this passage. A great celebration about an awesome day of ministry. The news of this traveling around the world. And then the death of Jesus' beloved cousin, John the Baptist. So this passage is a mixture of joy and grief. As the disciples report their ministry success to Christ, and Jesus has to deal with this devastating news about his friend and cousin. So understandably, after a day like this, Jesus encourages his apostles to come away with him to rest and retreat. But this giant crowd of over 5,000 people find them and follow them around. So Jesus changes his plan based on that and preaches to the crowd. Again, whenever there's this crowd of people that are like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus as tired as he might be, as sad as he might be, as grieving as he might be, he has compassion on the crowds. This is who God is. And Jesus, uh, his compassion for this crowd led to a day of preaching to them, yes, but they were, they were in a town, they were far away from a town where the food could be bought, and Jesus had compassion on them because he knew they were hungry and thirsty. That's an amazing thing about God. He had compassion on these people over missing a meal, missing dinner. And he took two fish and, or let me think of how, which one it is. There's a couple different, um, I think it's five loaves and two fish in this Mark passage. And he breaks these and blesses them. And, and the whole crowd of over 5,000, it could, it could have even been as much as 10,000 people, because it's men and women and children all together, uh, were fed with leftovers. Amazing miracle. I mean, when we pick up this story, um, Jesus has just sent his disciples ahead of him in a boat. And uh, he is going to finally get some rest and restoration that he sorely needs with the Father. You know, Jesus is fully God, but we, we often forget he was fully man. And he was exhausted and in a state of grief, needing to meet with God for restoration. So we're going to pick up that story uh, here in Mark 6. And here we're looking to see how the revelation from Exodus 34 is deepened and lengthened by this full flower of Christ's revelation. So beginning in Mark 6, 45. Immediately 
Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Um, then the story goes on. They cross over, get out of the boat, and the crowds meet Jesus right there to once again uh, begin asking him to, to minister to them, which he does. But one, one of the curious things about this passage is that it says this weird thing, that Jesus was, saw this disciple struggling, and he looks out at them and says, I'm going to pass by them. Like, I'm just going to walk past them in the boat. And you're like, that's really a strange part of the story. Like, why would that detail be there? And he doesn't even end up doing it. He ends up, well, he, he ends up being seen and then comforting them, obviously, because uh, they think he's a ghost. Well, this whole idea of um, passing by is written by the biblical authors to remind us of Exodus 34, which talks about um, passing by in several different areas in, in, in Exodus 33 and 34. So this is meant to be a, uh, if you will, a, another another train on the car of God's revelation, right? This could, this is actually like the caboose of God's revelation. This is Christ. This is the kitten caboodle, baby. This is Jesus. We're supposed to hear this word Jesus passing by them and remember this, this uh, Exodus 33 uh, revelation. The flower of God's revelation is coming into full bloom here. Our author, Dane Orland, says, why would Jesus intend to pass by them? Four times in Exodus 33 and 34, the Lord says he will pass by Moses. The Greek version of the Old Testament, which um, uses the same word that Mark uses, the same Greek word. The Lord passed by Moses and revealed that his deepest glory is seen in his mercy and grace. And Jesus came to do in flesh and blood what God had done only in wind and voice in the Old Testament. When we see the Lord revealing his truest character to Moses in Exodus 34, we are seeing the shadow that will one day yield to the shadow caster, Jesus Christ in the Gospels. That's awesome. Like To, th to think of the, the depth of knowledge and insight that people had into the Old Testament scriptures and as they're writing the story of Jesus, recognizing those themes and weaving them together, it's just an amazing, amazing thing. In Exodus 33 and 34, we get this huge level of clarity about who God is and what he's like. God says he's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness. And Jesus brings that revelation home, showing us the full flower of who God is for our comprehension. Saying to his disciples, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. What comes to mind when we think about God, said Tozer, is the most important thing about us. This morning, I encourage you to allow the revelation of who God is to invite you into the Savior's arms. That sounds flowery, it might even sound corny to you, but the truth is, 
the revelation of who, who God is in Christ is, is an invitation to come to Christ. For Jesus desires to help you, not to hurt you. To save you, not to condemn you. To heal you and deliver you, not to abandon you. That's Jesus' heart. God can be provoked to anger just like any good parent can be provoked to anger. God will punish unrepentant people who do not come to Christ the narrow way. How, how could a just God do otherwise? But God is not here to condemn us, but to save us. He came into the world to convict us of our sin and our need for him, and then to fill that need with his very self. Amazing. To convict us of our need for him, for salvation, and for, and for God to abide in him, and then to say, by the way, here it is. I am what you've been looking for. So really... I want to invite you again for, for the hundredth time to just do one of those sermons that encourages you to come to Jesus just as you are. Our sinful nature tells us God will condemn us and punish, punish us when we come to him. Our sinful nature tells us we can no longer come to God because we've used up all of our chances with him. Our sinful nature tells us that God has run out of forgiveness and certainly patience with us. And these are all lies from the pit of hell. They really are. God instead says to you and I continually, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. As I said, the Christian life, according to Orland, is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is we've produced over many decades in our lives, for some of us, letting those assumptions fall away, and let them slowly be replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. He does not harbor his anger towards you. He does not condemn you. But you must come to him to see what God can do in as the worship team comes forward, I want to read you an encouragement from Hebrews 4 as you come to Jesus again this morning. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy find grace to help us in our time of need. Join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you for your revelation. Um, and thank you for giving us the full revelation of your son, Jesus, who says, take courage, O God, do not be afraid. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Thank you for being ready to give us mercy, to give us grace. Thank you for being ready to forgive us countless times to redeem us, to redeem our lives from the pit, and crown us with your love and compassion. Thank you for being the father whose wayward child comes home and the father surprises him with, with a beautiful coat, with a ring, and with a party, because what was lost has been found. Thank you for being the God who does not condemn us, but is here to save us. And may this gospel, this truth, permeate to the deepest levels of our hearts, our words, the message
we share with one another in the church. Let us come to know you for all that you are and see your glory, the compassion, gracious one, slow to anger, rich in